Hello, welcome to Primordial Soup Pot. I'm Rustin Perret, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Aaron Johnson. Each of us is excited to bring you our chosen anecdote from the godforsaken or god-blessed cookbook of ecology, evolution, and natural history, but we are more excited that you have chosen to listen. Though we host this podcast, each of us is in the same boat as our audience because neither of us knows what story the other will tell. This week, we are focusing on extinctions. Hell yeah. How'd you find the research for this episode? Oh, true. Um, it actually came pretty easily. I picked a relatively well-known topic. Well, well-known in like conservation circles, not necessarily to the public at large, although I would argue it should be. So there was a lot of information that I could use and a lot of different sources that I could corroborate with. So the research was pretty easy for me. What about you? I picked the topic I was surprised that I'd never heard about because it was just so interesting. And I found it out by accident, if that makes sense. Like I was looking at something completely different and like I saw this like a little footnote. I'm like, but that's so bizarre. And then I went down a rabbit hole. All right. Well, should I get started then? Let's get into it. All right. So full disclosure, this is an episode about extinctions. So my topic is fairly depressing, even for this topic of extinctions. Uh, however, I think it's seriously worth talking about because of the lessons it teaches us about conservation and the impact that it's had on conservation movements pretty much worldwide, but especially in the United States. Any conservationist will be well aware of this tale. And so today I'm going to be talking about the passenger pigeon. That is a sad tale. I've heard about them. I know they're extinct, at least. Yeah, well, of course they're, ex <laughs> of course they're extinct, Aaron. <laughs> I wouldn't be talking about the. I wouldn't be talking about these birds if they were still flying around. It's like when they mention extinction in a biology textbook, they always bring up the passenger pigeon. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, just imagining at the end of this story, I'd be like, "Yeah, and passenger pigeons are still alive. You can see them today." And then we'd have to edit the whole thing out and put it in a completely different episode. Yeah, I thought there's going to be a reveal at the end where you just had like six of them in a box. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's what all that rustling's been in the background of your, <laughs> your room. A bit of background on the passenger pigeon itself. They were highly social birds that would travel a great deal, even for a migratory bird species. They were one of those species that's kind of constantly on the move. Definitely more so in migration during the migration season, but even when they weren't migrating, they would be moving from place to place to place in these huge flocks. And they were these huge, densely populated flocks. Their scientific name actually means wandering migrating. I have no idea why they gave the passenger pigeon's scientific name two verbs, but there it is. It doesn't really make sense. That's what they do. But apparently they did it a lot, so they really had to hammer that point home. That's Maybe that's all they do. They just fly. Point A to point B. So in terms of the actual appearance of the bird, if you're like me and Aaron and have any kind of knowledge of biology or any background on the topic, you've probably heard of the passenger pigeon before. They kind of looked a lot like they're comparable to like city pigeons in terms of size, uh, in terms of shape. They're more they're most similar to morning doves, which are another really common species of dove that are around a lot, especially in the eastern United States. They kind of had this brownish gray appearance with like patches of iridescence on their body. The passenger pigeon lived in the eastern half of North America from what is now southern Canada. So Ontario, Quebec, Nova Scotia, 
south to what is now Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, the deep south. It's a very big range. Yeah, yeah, they were pretty much all over the eastern United States. They would typically breed in the Great Lakes in New York, and then they would migrate south to North Carolina and the Gulf of Mexico in the wintertime. So basically, they were retiring in the fall and then unretiring in the springtime. In terms of their habitat, they lived in mixed hardwood forests, which completely covered this half of the continent at the time. And they ate a variety of seeds, nuts, and berries, and would supplement their diet with worms and insects. So pretty standard, you know, songbird or dove kind of diet. When they would breed, they would breed and raise young in these huge flocks. So they never, they were never isolated. So a lot of other bird species, when they'll spend part of the year in social settings and part of the year isolated. So some, so like some of your seabirds will spend a lot of their life is- more isolated from members of their own species. But when they breed, they'll get together in these huge flocks at their breeding sites. Other species will kind of migrate in these huge flocks and then they might isolate when they breed to kind of split up and not like step on each other's toes in terms of breeding and for sharing resources. But passenger pigeons were always around other passenger pigeons. And that's one of the factors that ultimately ultimately led to their decline. So if they had spread out better, they would be alive still? I would argue yes, for a few different reasons. Because huh, usually like a school of anchovies, when they split up, they're, they're kind of screwed. For natural predators, I would agree with you. But in terms of dealing with humans... Oh, that don't work. That don't really work. Kind of grouping yourself together like that really hurts you on a population level when you're being hunted by humans. Like going back to your anchovy example, if humans are going after anchovies, it's a lot harder if they're not schooled up to get a lot of them at once. Like you can just throw out a net and catch a whole bunch of anchovies. But if they're all spread out, you know, it's a lot harder on us. The opposite is true when you're talking about natural predators that have a hard time targeting one individual out of a whole flock. As I was talking about earlier, what kind of makes this story remarkable is just the sheer number of passenger pigeons that used to be in the United States. They had these huge population, they had this huge population they went extinct before we really came up with any kind of accurate way to quantitatively measure their population. We just kind of have to go based off of these estimates. These estimates are consistent with each other in a lot of cases, and they're also staggering. So it is estimated that there were between three and five billion passenger pigeons in North America when Europeans arrived on the continent. That's a lot of pigeons. Yes. And I'm going to provide some other facts that will put that into perspective. Right now, in North America, there are roughly 7.2 billion total birds. Not, not birds of a single species. Just all birds. All birds in North America, 7.2 billion. Passenger pigeons by themselves, when the Europeans arrived on the continent, were half that number. Now, there are other factors involved in that. Birds in North America in general have been declining over the last few centuries. But still, that really puts that in perspective. When early settlers arrived in North America, they described, quote, countless numbers and infinite magnitudes of pigeons. Other reports described a flock of pigeons being a mile in width and taking several hours to fly overhead. That's literally... A solar eclipse, pretty much. Yeah. There's actually other reports that the migratory flocks of pigeons were so numerous 
that they would actually darken the sky. Oh, just imagine all the shit. <laughs> Is there any accounts about that? There's got to be one. There has to be. I couldn't find anything about the sheer tonnage of bird poop because I already did an we already did an episode about bird poop. So we that would did. just be redundant at this point. Imagine being a window cleaner and I I don't know when these went extinct. But they imagine went... being a window cleaner when they're in their prime and you've spent hours and you just see this on the horizon just no. No god, please. <laughs> Just like like the music from Psycho plays in the background, like <laughs> as the birds are flying. There's literally a Hitchcock movie called The Birds that could have been about passenger pigeons, honestly, given how many of them there were. It should have been. Did they poop in that movie? I don't think so. I think they just mostly try to kill people. Oh, they then fly into gas stations and explode. <laughs> no, no, they didn't. This is not Birdemic. This is an actual good horror movie that came out in like the 1960s i want to say uh for clarification birdemic i mentioned in a past episode that we used to watch a shitty movie every sunday birdemic was like one of the first ones it involves birds attacking because of global warming and they fly and kamikaze and explode and they make plain noises while doing it but apparently if you have a coat hanger you are able to defend yourself from these birds. Yes, there is a scene where they fight off the birds with coat hangers until they're able to get into a car and pull out an assault rifle. The assault rifle they used in the film was an airsoft gun. You can see they sharpied in the tip. Like, you can see the orange tip that was, like, covered up. I have that same airsoft gun. I used to have that as a kid. It was $25 in a two-pack at Walmart. (laughs) Just to uh, put in perspective the budget for this film. Yeah, what a cinematic classic, honestly. Truly oh, an, icon- an iconic shitty movie. There's a sequel which wasn't as bad. Bad in a good way, not as enjoyable. And I think there's a third. And there's a GoFundMe. And he wanted like $100,000. And I think he got like, maybe like six hundred. He He did not raise anything for that one. Oh my god. I think... I think it might have been confirmed. I'm not sure if it's happening or not. See, I, I feel like that honestly works against how enjoyable that movie is going to be. Because, like, what made the the original for like the original movies enjoyable was the fact that they were on a low budget, and you can clearly laugh at the fact that this movie is terrible and looks like shit. Yeah, you know? when they started getting more money and they wanted to be more competent, or once they realized the first one was bad. And they tried to just roll with that. That's when they lose the charm. If it's unintentionally bad, that's where the glory is. See, I don't necessarily agree with that across the board. Like with Birdemic, sure. Like the like the Sharknado movies knew that they were bad initially. Like they had that really cheesy, awful sci-fi B movie thing going on, and they're enjoyable for what they are. And throughout the successive movies, they just get crazier and crazier. Um, I think Anthony Weiner was in the third one. I only saw the first. <laughs> I, I <laughs> it wasn't the, worth watching. I saw the end of the third one. <laughs> I think the main character... Sur- there are sharks in space by the time they get to the third one. One of the characters survives atmospheric re-entry inside of a shark. Which is just incredible. 
Yeah, they might have jumped the gun a little bit in that one. Are they still making them? I have no idea. I hope not. They, they just burn out, you know? When they say, let's make this as ridiculous as possible, there's no genuine shittiness to it. Yeah. Yeah. After a while, you kind of run out of that. You just run out of things that you can do with sharks. Like, you've already had them inside of a tornado flying through the sky. Now we've had them in space. What else can you really do with a shark? Realistically. Well, Shark Week's been going strong for God knows how many years. Right, but, like, that's driven kind of by scientific discoveries about sharks. Like, we're learning more about sharks. No, it's all reality TV now. Okay, yeah, at this point, it's... Yeah, okay, a few years ago, they did try to have Michael Phelps race a shark, which was ridiculous, because right at the beginning of that episode... I watched like the first 30 seconds of it and like they taught they showed him like swimming with like this giant fin on on his feet. I'm like, well, no, he can't fucking beat a shark if he needs this fin to even be competitive. I don't think he can beat a shark, period. Right. Like, no, he can't beat a shark. If he needs if he needs a fin, he can't beat a shark. Why don't you just tie a motor to his back? Yeah. Just put him on a speedboat. Just put him on a jet ski. It's like, oh, yeah, when we do that, you can you can beat the shark. Yeah, with the power of human ingenuity, I can beat a shark. Like, no, that's not how this works. You're you're cheating. You're cheating What is what you are doing, Mr. Phelps. Anyway. Bit off tangent there. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but back to the passenger pigeon. Um, yeah, they would actually darken the sky, which is like some, like, Persian archery type shit. Like, this is straight out of, out of Thermopylae. Like, this is literally a line from the 300. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. I I have. Don't remember it well. But I remember like the all the arrows coming down, shields up. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So these pigeons would literally darken the sky and pr- make, create a solar eclipse. And Americans looked at this and basically said, then we will fight in the shade. Another fact that uh, I want to share about this to just demonstrate their population size and how densely they were packed together in these flocks. So they would roost in trees in these hardwood forests at night. And their numbers in the trees were so high and at such a high density that they would actually break tree limbs because of their weight. This might not seem incredible on its face, but keep in mind, these are birds that are evolved to be as lightweight as possible. And they are just knocking trees down. And there are so many of them that they are breaking off tree branches. That's a lot of birds. That is a ton of birds. That is an almost staggering number of birds in one place. And I still stand by my original point. Like, imagine all the poop on those trees when they're done. <laughs> it might not have even been the birds that was the problem. They might have just shit on the trees and killed them. Honestly, like, imagine they just choke the tree out like they mummify it. It's just a, like a strangler fig of shit. <laughs> Somebody just walks through like a week later and all these dead trees are there like skeletons in the woods and everyone's like, what happened here? And they're just like, passenger pigeons. So now we get to the sad part, honestly, of the story. We come to understand and explain how they went extinct. And they were driven to extinction by hunters, basically. And which on its face isn't a bad thing because the pigeons had been hunted for centuries by uh, various different people and groups of uh, people, including Native Americans and Europeans when they first came. 
and that makes sense given that they just had such an astronomically large population and they represented such a huge source of food. This really got out of hand in the 1800s when Americans started taking the hunting of passenger pigeons to a whole new level. Another factor that was involved in their decline was the clearing of forests. So we started cutting down all the hardwood forests that they depended on for habitat, both during the breeding and non-breeding seasons. And so they were gradually forced into smaller and smaller spaces. This is an issue that comes up with a lot of different species. When we talk about things like habitat fragmentation and wildlife conservation, this is something that really affected the passenger pigeon, you know, over a century ago. And at the time, there were no restrictions on how pigeons could be hunted. Basically, if you had a way to go out and kill a bunch of pigeons, you could do it. There were no laws about, you know, bag limits or how you could shoot them, how many you could shoot. So it was just like open season all the time. Hunters would shoot or net the birds and then they would go and sell them in city markets. And it was easy to do this, like I was talking about earlier, because they were concentrated in such high numbers. You could go and just pick off a whole bunch of them almost without even trying when you were in the middle of one of these flocks, provided you weren't covered in bird shit and could actually see. I don't even think you have to see. As long as you know which way is up, I think you'll get one. Yeah. If you just have like, you know, a, a, like a shotgun with a decent sized spread, you're going to hit something. It's kind of hard not to. But yeah, so if you were to go out and bait one bird to come in, you'd likely attract the whole flock and then you can really pick out a whole bunch of them at once. Birds were especially targeted during the breeding season when birds were actually shot right off their nests and their young were knocked out of the nests um, using long poles. Apparently, they people would also buy and eat the young birds too. Did they taste good? I mean, sure. I, I guess I guess they're probably pretty tender. They're not very not very old. No, I mean like just the pigeons in general. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, people still eat pigeons these days like or like quail and stuff and things like that. They're you know, they're pretty commonly eaten in a lot of different areas of the world. Like you go into a fancy restaurant and they'll have like quail eggs instead of like just normal chicken eggs. Because apparently it it makes it that much fancier if the egg is a third of the size and costs four times as much. That's the thing with things is they become rare. They become trendy. Like lobsters. Lobsters was like the poor man's food. Oh, yeah. Lobster is like if you like had a rough day at work, didn't really bring in enough. You go down to the dock, scrape one off the side, and that's what your family's eating. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, and it doesn't even matter how how fucking terrible it tastes. As long as it's rare, it will be expensive, and people will consider it a delicacy. Absolutely. There's a lot of weird ones out there. I don't understand why. I guess economics, but even then, come on. Rely on your taste buds, people. Anyway, the other really cruel thing that they would honestly do to these birds is when they had a whole bunch of them in a roost in a tree... You know, they would actually take pots of burning sulfur and put them under the roosts, and then the fumes would rise up into the tree and knock the and daze the birds. They would fall out of the tree, and then from there the hunters could just, you know, go up, kill them, collect them, put them in a bag, and take them in to sell. Um, and when they did sell them at markets, they were crazy cheap. They were sold for as little as 50 cents for a dozen birds, which isn't as cheap as it sounds because of inflation but even when you adjust for inflation 
right now, 50 cents, or the equivalent of 50 cents back then is now about $15. That's still really good. That is in, still insanely cheap. Like, if you think about it, that's like three chickens worth of meat at KFC that you're getting for 15 bucks. Or, I don't yeah. think you could sell, like, rats for that much. No. No, these were dirt, dirt cheap. Yeah. Because there were just so many of them. And, I mean, they're pigeons, so it's not like you're getting a full chicken, but still, like, that's it's, a lot of meat. They're decently it. sized, right? They're, like, the same size as, like, the New York pigeons, ones you get in the big cities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they haven't been fattened up by, you know, all the old guys feeding them seeds and bread, but... Yeah, there there aren't there aren't lords of the pigeons for passenger pigeons anymore. Do you remember but... when we were feeding the pigeons the one time? <laughs> yes. We went and bought a couple loaves of bread one time when we were in DC and we found a whole flock of pigeons and just started throwing bread on the street and the pigeons came down and they started eating it and we were attracting a good flock and it was it was a good time. I was enjoying myself. And then this like old guy with a beard walks up with like a pot of seed like you know, in his in his arms, and the pigeons just like see this man walking by and just flock over to him, as if he's like their lord and savior, and he just like stands there, and just starts throwing seed on the ground, and the pigeons are just like all over this man, just like like a tornado of pigeons just circling around him, just totally stole all of our thunder. And he was pissed at us too, like he was giving us very dirty looks. Yeah, we were getting some serious side eye from this man. I think we were like poaching on his turf or something. I didn't realize that pigeon feeders had turf. I, I guess they have turf wars or something. Maybe like it's that. like an unspoken rule. I don't know. That was like, that was his block. That's the area he runs. And we come in sporting like gang colors of another pigeon feeding group. That'd be, that'd be a really absurd parody of like the wire where instead of like having turf for like, you know, selling drugs, they have turf for feeding pigeons. You've never seen The Wire. You don't. I've never seen The Wire. You should definitely watch The Wire. I'm going to keep making Wire and Game of Thrones references until you finally watch both of those shows and Friends. That I I haven't seen any of them. Okay, you can get you can get away with not having seen Friends. That's more of like a '90s thing. So you can get away with it, but come on, Game of Thrones and The Wire. Aaron, our listeners going to be so pissed. They probably haven't seen it either. The four uh, Belgium guys that are listening, or gals, the four <laughs> people from Belgium, I, I don't know if I brought this up. I'm just stoked that someone outside of the U.S. is listening. And for some reason, our most popular city as of now, at the time of this recording, is Brussels in Belgium. We're international, baby. That and, like, according to, like, the analytics, the middle of the U.S., because I think these people are all using like a VPN or something, or they just, it could figure out where they're from. So it plops them right down in the middle of this one lake in Montana. <laughs> I don't think they're actually from there. So hey, it might be a bit skewed. It could just be like a whole bunch of people, like on a houseboat in the middle of the lake. <laughs> you gotta check this out. These guys are great. <laughs> They talk a lot about wasps and shit. It's great. <laughs> no, I love these guys. <laughs> they, they could tell us all about coelacanths and how you can fit them into suitcases and everything. It's great. It might be their only connection with the outside world. Like that, maybe they've never left that lake. They've been there their whole life. Oh my gosh, 
if that's the case, I feel like we have a responsibility to uh, to let them know all about pop culture. In which case, the first two things they should do are watch Game of Thrones and The Wire. But yeah, back to the really, honestly, the really sad demise of the passenger pigeon. At the peak of their slaughter, really, more than 50,000 birds were being killed at just one roosting site during the breeding season. When birds would eventually move nesting sites because so many birds were dying, hunters would just quickly rediscover their new roosting sites and start killing them again before they could successfully nest and raise young. And this kept going on for decades throughout the 1800s. And then finally, by the 1890s, people, go figure, started noticing that there were not a lot of passenger pigeons left. And so they started to try to put conservation efforts in place, but it was just way too little, way too late. And they were also really weakly enforced, so people just kind of kept doing what they were doing anyway. Even if those those regulations had been correctly put in place, and enforced by this point the birds were pretty much doomed because of their social nature really so because they were so social and they were used to breeding in groups the breeding success in isolation was minimal it was far far less than it would have normally have been if they were in a group so their recovery was just doomed really and this is really unlike a lot of other less social animals, which is why I say that, like, in a lot of ways, the fact that they would flock up and be highly sociable was what ultimately could, contributed to their demise. So if you have another species like, you know, a predatory bird like an eagle or a cheetah, or if you have like an axolotl, even, they're used to living almost their entire lives in isolation. So in some cases, they only really meet other members of their own species when they come together to breed so they can live in isolation you know as a species near extinction but if you're a species like the passenger pigeon that's used to being in these flocks and is really really detrimentally affected by being in isolation having a really low population is a huge problem in the past they'd survive based on just based on their sheer numbers like they were one of those species that whose main evolutionary advantage is just being numerous and just having a lot of them you know it's like the area 51 philosophy you know they can't hunt all of us <laughs> they can't shoot us all they can't shoot us all that was the passenger pigeon survival tactic except that eventually americans came along and were like we can we can shoot you all like damn fucking right we can shoot you all <laughs> and that's exactly what we did eventually pretty much the passenger pigeon was extinct in the wild. The last recorded capturable wild passenger pigeon was made in March 1900. And then the last known passenger pigeon died in the Cincinnati Zoo in 1914. The bird was a female named Martha. There's your Batman v Superman reference. Why would you say that name? <laughs> she was 29 years old at the time of her death. Not once had she laid a fertile egg in her life. So... Part of that was that they didn't have, you know, a male bird around. Yeah, well, what did they expect? Well, they didn't have a male bird around for a lot of her life, but she'll, still, she had lived for 29 years. Although this is a really sad story, really horrific if you think about it, there are some good things that did come out of this. The passenger pigeon's demise really demonstrated the sheer power of humans to destroy a species. Like, if we could decimate a species that once blotted out the sun, we can pretty much and any species we want, if we really get down to it. 
this was a relatively new idea at the time because part of the reason that people just kept hunting passenger pigeons was that they thought, well, their numbers are infinite. We can't possibly kill them all. So even like even we were buying into the Area 51 logic with these with these pigeons. But after the passenger pigeon went extinct, we realized, hey, we can have a huge impact on the natural world and natural resources are not infinite. They will run out at some point, no matter how numerous they are at any one point in time. And this species also taught us the importance of conservation measures, right? Because I personally think that if bans had on their killing had been put in place sometime in the 19 or in the 1870s, the remaining flocks could have repopulated the species. They were large enough at the time and still were still in these large enough groups. That they could have a lot of breeding success and could eventually rejuvenated the numbers of passenger pigeons. But that didn't happen. And the measures turned out to be too little too late. The story was also really shocking. You know, it was more shocking. It's shocking today. And so you can imagine what it was like back then to realize that we could have this effect. Yeah, it sounds like there's people that they could see their life in their lifetime. They could see a species go from extremely high numbers to just extinct. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So when this kind of trend was emerging with other species, we were much quicker to act because there were people who would think immediately about the passenger pigeon and go, oh, my God, we got to do something now because we do not want this species to suffer the same kind of fate. And so a lot of subsequent measures that we have put in place have shown the ability of humans to kind of to curve these effects and help species rebound. The one that immediately comes to mind here in the United States, at least, is the Endangered Species Act. This has demonstrated really that although we can have this, we have this ability to completely decimate species, we also have the ability to help them recover. So ultimately, we're the ones who get to decide happens to pretty much all the species that are around us for better or for worse so you can take that as a positive or you can take that as a negative depending on your overall worldview yeah i guess in the end it serves as an important lesson nothing's invincible don't take it for granted it's it's truly a a, it's a really sobering tale but it was a sobering tale that we needed to know about and that we needed to experience and there were a lot of really valuable lessons that we we learned the hard way here. Um, and that's why I think that even though you probably already knew a decent amount about the passenger pigeon, it's a story that's still worth sharing and it's still worth talking about because there are a lot of people who don't know about it, who might not fully grasp the sheer effect that we can have without a lot of conservation measures in place. Like now... The kind of hunting that the passenger pigeon experienced is not possible. You have hunting seasons, you have limits on the number of birds that you can shoot, measures that help keep the population under control and keep it stable. Those are measures that were put in place, at least partially because of the impact that we had on the passenger pigeon and other species like it. So yeah, that's my piece. Wow, that was sad. It was really sad, but I did warn you. Yeah, you did. That was, and we picked extinctions. I think we knew this was coming. Yeah, this was never going to be a really happy, a really happy episode. Well, I think I might have a change of pace for it. Okay, good. I, I think that might be needed. We really need a, we really need a friends type pick me up story here. How you doing? That's the only quote you know from the show, isn't it? Pivot.
Oh, yeah, that's right. You know, two quotes. Sorry. Okay, I have the extinction no one was upset about. People were actually pretty happy about this one. Wow, how fucking awful was this species? This is the Rocky Mountain Locust. Have you heard of it? I have not. So you talk about like passenger pigeons and how like large they were when they flew. Multiply that by like six. This is not an official estimate. This is this is the Aaron estimate. You multiply that by six and that's a locust swarm for you. Okay, so like some real biblical type shit. Absolutely. This is straight out of like Exodus here. Okay. So the Rocky Mountain locusts had numbers in the range of billions, possibly more. I think trillions, one estimate said. These guys are found all along the Rocky Mountain range and the surrounding Great Plains, and they span from Texas to Canada. So this is an important bit to remember. Keep this in your back pocket. Locusts are kind of like a state of mind. When what a you, locust, what do you mean? When a locust that? is on its own, it acts like a grasshopper. You've seen a grasshopper before. They kind of just hop around. And a locust is a grasshopper. So these aren't like scientific terms strictly, but grasshoppers are solitary and sedentary. Like they kind of stay in one place. There are certain species that they can develop into locusts. And when they do this, they often get larger and they have a different change in their colors or patterns. But the biggest thing is the behavioral change. In the Rocky Mountain locusts, it's thought this transformation is caused by high population densities. So they'll have tiny hairs acting as mechanical receptors. When they bump into each other, that starts triggering some changes. And chemical receptors. It's mainly found in their poop. So basically, if enough grasshoppers are shitting in one place, they become locusts? Basically, the human equivalent is if you had a bunch of truckers, like real hairy, chested truckers, and they're all in line for the bathroom, like Taco Bell, and someone just clogs the toilet real bad. And like the line's getting bigger, they're all trapped together, and they're just kind of getting rowdy. They're getting pissed. They're bumping into each other. There's poop. <laughs> it just smells bad. Let's say they all go feral, and they form a massive swarm, and they just head out to the next restaurant to eat their own body weight in food. <laughs> and then they just keep moving to each restaurant and just wipe it out. That's Wait, like the human equivalent. Why are they truckers in your metaphor, though? I don't, I don't know. Like, I feel like people and like, I, I, I feel like you didn't have to just like completely alienate truckers from our listener base. Well, truckers are used to driving long distances and these guys go long distances. Yes, but Aaron, our list are like four listeners in Belgium could be truckers. You don't know that you could I just don't lost our that. entire listener base. I just isolated our core demographic. Yeah, the people on that lake could be taking a vacation from trucking. What the hell, Aaron? <laughs> okay, well, if you guys are all in line for a Taco Bell, just space out. Keep your distance. Yeah. Although, yeah, I, I, I do see that happen. I could see that happening with just about anyone, though. Like, this is why plumbers make a lot of money. Because, ultimately, if my, like, if my power's out, I can at least, like, go to bed, wake up the next morning... You know, turn on my propane grill and cook breakfast. But, but, there is shit coming out of the toilet. That needs to be fixed. That's a, that's a huge problem. 
what point are you making here? I mean, the point that I'm making is like the importance of plumbers and like why plumbers make so much money because like their services are really needed. Like if you, if you have issues with your plumbing, next thing you know, you got a bunch of angry truckers running around and scouring the land and (laughs) robbing it of all its natural resources. (laughs) Whereas like if the power goes out, you're like, that's not good, but people are just like, yeah, okay, we'll wait for it to come back on, I guess. So if there's a power outage, call a plumber. No, no. That's <laughs> not the point I'm making. <laughs> this is like the nth degree of point making. It was like, well, if this happens and this happens and this might, plumbers are good to have. No. <laughs> plumbers aren't gonna help you with your power outage aaron i'm skipping you started with power outage i'm moving on all right fine we'll just cut all that out it's okay (laughs) so locusts the rocky mountain locusts when they're in small populations they just act like grasshoppers they just hop around they eat a little bit they don't move that much but when there's a lot concentrated there's a switch they develop they change and they just start migrating massive distances to eat everything. Now, this has always been an issue in North America, but in 1874, this is like the worst of the worst. Trillions of locusts. This swarm was so big, it literally darkened the skies as they flew. Like passenger pigeons, put that on steroids. It's estimated there are 27 million tons worth of locusts at this time. 27 wow. million tons of locusts. That's crazy. That's a lot. So apparently in the 1870s, we were just doing a really good job of defending the sun. It was just plugged between the pigeons and the locusts. Like, just no one got suntan. <laughs> yeah. We need vitamin D, damn it. Bam. So these locusts did what they do best. And of course, that's eating. And entire farms were wiped out. One report claims that over 15 acres of corn were eaten in the span of three hours. Three hours, 15 acres of corn gone. Holy shit. It wasn't just corn. Wheat, barley, beans, fruit trees, melons, potatoes, all gone. Reduced to atoms. At- wait, atoms? No, that was were you, were you from Avengers. A, are making a Thanos reference? Yeah, it was. I guess locusts are just inevitable. Yeah, I guess they are. So not a single crop was safe from these guys, except for peas, according to one account I found. It wasn't toxic. They just didn't seem to really like it. Peas, huh? Yeah, there's there's just one account. I found no information on it. Really just a little footnote. Hmm. And that was enough for these guys. They didn't stop there. What What was it about the peas? I don't know. I think it literally said they might just not like them. It didn't say they were toxic to them. It didn't say it was repellent. They just didn't seem to like peas that much. Did like the the locusts see the sign that says like pea farm and think like, oh, damn, people just been pissing all over this field. I don't want any part of it. (laughs) Okay, these guys aren't picky. Do you know why? Why? Because they didn't stop at just the crops. They started eating anything. They really brought in their pallets here. What else were they eating? Sawdust. Leather, wool, their accounts of them literally eating the clothes right off of people's backs. Oh my 
God. That's how bad they were. It was terrifying to be caught in a swarm. And they're pretty big, you know, like two, three inches. That doesn't sound huge. But when you're being bombarded by them and they're just crawling all over you, it's terrifying. So farmers, of course, did whatever they could to stop these guys. They throw tarps over their crops. That made no difference. The locusts ate right through the tarps. And then they got to eat the crops underneath also. Yeah, you've just given the locusts an appetizer. Yeah, that's pretty much all you gave them. They would be lighting fires to get rid of them. And it said that they landed on the fires. I don't know why they were just dumb. They just landed on the fires. But they landed on them with such volume, they would choke the fires out. They literally extinguished it with their bodies. Oh, my God. So they took, like, the the honeybee approach to the murder hornets, cover it with their bodies, and extinguish it. I don't think they did it intentionally. I think they just kind of landed and... You know, just with such volume of them, they literally choked it out. So people started getting more creative in how to get rid of them. One entomologist named Norman Criddle invented a pesticide for them called Criddle's Mixture. It's composed of horse manure, arsenic, and molasses. Sorry, I just want to say that Norman Criddle is a great name for an entomologist. He's almost named Norman Critter, which is fabulous. It's I think that should be a catchphrase. Go out there and give them the old Criddles mixture. (laughs) Uh, I didn't see if this was very successful, but I'm going to guess no. Some people created devices called hopper dozers, which was essentially a plow pulled by two horses with a shield. Imagine like a snowplow on the front of a car. That's what it was. And as it was like plowing these fields, the locust would jump to get out of the way, jump into the shield, and then get knocked into a pan of kerosene where they drowned. Did it have to be kerosene? I, it just said they drowned it. It said kerosene. I guess maybe like they had issues staying afloat in it. I'm not certain. Like, I mean, if they were drowning, you could just use water. I mean, were they lighting them on fire afterwards? They might have lit them on fire afterwards. I tried to find some pictures of it, and, you know, it's a little dicey because, you know, it's from the 1870s. There's a couple. The farmers are just like, oh, you're going to snuff out my fire? Well, I'll light you on fire. And I'm fairly certain that the hopper dozers just destroys the crops, too, because it's a massive plow. So it's like... Well, you already killed my crops. I might as well kill you. And even then, like, it barely made a dent. So people were desperate. Of course, they were just shooting at them wildly. And even though you could probably take a shotgun, probably take out, like, a hundred maybe in a blast, that does nothing. Yeah, yeah. In desperation, an entomologist named Charlie Riley suggested that people just eat them. I'm assuming they were actually edible? Yeah, they weren't. They weren't poisonous. I don't think there's any known toxins in them. They had like the uh, the pigeon technique to survive. They just had many. So they probably had many predators. I'm sure not a lot of animals would pass on eating one if they saw it. But there's just so many. He published a couple recipes for pan fried locusts and locust stew. That didn't really catch on. Started getting really bad. Local governments began to step in. Nebraska mandated that any man between 16 and 60 had to work at least two days killing locusts in certain months when they're really bad. It was illegal to not spend your weekends killing locusts. So people were drafted into the locust fighting force? That's what happened. Yes, that's the best way to put it. To be clear, Australia went to war against the emus and we went to war against the locusts. 
At least the state of Nebraska did. <laughs> so just just Nebraska. Actually, no. Missouri offered a bounty of up to one dollar per bushel for the locusts. That's about twenty two dollars a bushel, which still like you could probably fill that bushel just by running with a basket in the air. So like that's a decent living. I mean, you're going to wind up without clothes by the end of it. But... Yeah, you're going to wind up without clothes. You can buy a new set with the $22 you just made. So the feds had to step in to help relieve this. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just picturing this guy like, like walking into a store with like a bushel full of locusts in one hand and just like rags hanging off of him and the guy, and the guy behind the desk being like, sir, you got to leave. No shoes, no shirt, no service. Or better yet, he just exchanges the locusts for some new clothes, <laughs> puts sure. them on, and then repeats the cycle. It's like it's like Sisyphus with his shirt. Just no matter no matter what he does, he he keeps losing it over and over and over again. <laughs> so, like I said, the feds had to step in to help relieve this. They started shipping corn and grains from less impacted states to help prevent starvation. U.S. Army had to get involved in supply distribution. Congress established the U.S. Entomological Commission to aid in stopping the hordes. They were trying their best, but there's just too many locusts. One news report from a local paper called the St. Louis Republican said that some small isolated farms just died of starvation. Oh, my God. They lost all their food. And they said that many graves would soon follow with the words just died of starvation. It was pretty bad. Aaron, I thought you said this was going to be a happier story. Well, they go extinct. Can we get to that part now? We'll get to there's there's a lot of moving parts in this. I can't stress how bad this was. Like people said they looked like rain clouds in the horizon and they sounded like hailstorms when they flew in the buildings. Apparently they would just crawl in from any crack they could fit through and just pour into the house. So even if you're hiding inside, you weren't completely safe from them. And they didn't eat people, but that's still terrifying. Has there been a horror movie made about locusts? Did you see the new Jurassic World? No. Are there locusts in that movie? Yeah, it was really out of place. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, these guys were so plentiful, they stopped trains. How? <laughs> they were like, there's, you can find like articles in newspapers with like giant grasshoppers pushing back on trains. No, they would just <laughs> die on the tracks. It was just so many would die. They'd make the tracks so slick that the trains would not get any friction and they'd have difficulties moving uphill. Holy shit. (laughs) There's a lot of these. And the weirdest part is they just disappeared. They were just gone. All this happened in the 1870s, and the last reported sighting was in 1902. Do we have any idea what happened? That was a debate for years. Like, did Pharaoh release the Hebrews? Like, what happened? (laughs) They got... All the farmers got to cross the Red Sea, and it was okay again. <laughs> All they ever wanted. <laughs> no, they just started like uh, releasing frogs in mass. Started taking care of the locusts. <laughs> now you got to deal with the frogs. You just moved on to another plague. We just became Australia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's apparent that whatever the farmers were doing was not enough, because that was not working at all. So the question for years was, what did? There were many theories, heavily debated, and some people thought that it was definitely some sort of ecological event. 
So there's maybe like some people said maybe alfalfa being introduced and they didn't like alfalfa. Maybe it's the peas. Maybe it was at the same time the buffalo almost went extinct. So maybe that had something to do with it. How? Exactly. Like it's kind of like, well, this happened around the same time, so it must be related. That's kind of the thought process. There's really no evidence for these. Or very weak evidence. I mean, at the same time, like, Carnegie was also making a shitload of money. So, like, was, was like, the locust population inversely correlated with his wealth somehow? <laughs> like, oh, He single-handedly were... stopped them. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, these two things were happening at the same time. So must, that was it. There <laughs> must be something going on there. Like, So, here's where one of the most popular theories came about. Remember how I told you the locusts were a result of conditions? Uh, yeah, yeah. So a lot of people thought that these locusts were still alive. They just weren't swarming anymore. They weren't becoming the locusts. They were just staying chill. What evidence is there to support that theory? That happens with a lot of other still living locust species. So they never went extinct, really. Yeah, that was a theory. It's just that like a locust, if you put it like if you have a locust species that's still alive, Compare the locust phase to the non-swarming phase, and they look different. They don't look the same. Like, they're still clearly, like, the same shape. They're still grasshoppers, but you could easily mistake them for different species, especially at the time where we don't have genetic analysis. So that was the theory for the longest time, just we don't know exactly what stressed them to swarm for all these years, but they stopped. So do we have, like, a definitive answer now, or? Yeah, we do. So they tried to replicate this in laboratories with some species they thought might be the Rocky Mountain locusts. These were grasshoppers in the Rocky Mountains. And they were closely related species, we learned later. But they weren't able to replicate the locust phase. They couldn't get them to become locusts. Did they not have the right kind of poop? I guess they had the wrong poop. The bathrooms, the lines weren't long enough. (laughs) The locusts hired plumbers. Or the grasshoppers hired plumbers, so they don't, be, so they didn't become locusts. So here's like one of the hardest parts with this. Even when we started getting advancements in genetic testing, it was really hard to get reliable samples of the Rocky Mountain locusts. There was virtually no museum specimens of them. The extinction happened so quickly, and there were so many, no one bothered to preserve any. Like no one collected these. This is the equivalent of like seeing a fruit fly. Is like ah, it belongs in a museum, you know. <laughs> yeah. Like the most mundane everyday thing, you just don't think about it. And then if it disappears one day, no one has any. You know what? Indiana Jones Five: The Search for the Lost Locust. <laughs> that literally happens in this pretty much. <laughs> really? So. If you want to research an extinct species, but you don't have any preserved specimens, you got to find some remains. Or invent a time machine. Time machine. Uh, in theory, yes, I suppose that would also work. We don't quite have that. Yeah, no. Not so really. if it was a dinosaur you're looking at, you look for fossils. That's how you get information. So where do you think they got remains of these locusts? Um, In like sediment beds? Like fossilized? Glaciers. Uh, really? Glaciers, yes. There's actually a lot of these. This is where I learned about it. There's a lot of glaciers, and they had been known to have grasshoppers frozen in the ice. Glaciers where? These are like in the Midwest. 
I believe, Wyoming. Huh. Yeah. Knife Point Glacier and aptly named Grasshopper Glacier. Basically, the locusts were just migrating in past years. They get caught in a bad storm and they just get knocked down and they become part of the glacier. They'd freeze. Okay. And this wasn't put together till Dr. Jeffrey Lockwood came along. And he's the one that kind of figured out we don't have these locusts. There are these glaciers filled with grasshoppers. There's got to be a correlation here. So in 1986, you know, almost 80 years after the last one was found alive, he went out with his team to collect specimens. He didn't believe that they were still alive. He thought they would extinct through the ecological changes, but he wanted some evidence. So over the next few years, he and his team obtained hundreds of grasshopper samples. A lot of them were just bits of fragments, like of a leg or an antenna. But they got about 130, like pretty much mostly intact samples like you almost get the full thing at one point these glaciers were like a big tourist attraction and visitors would just take little hammers and chisel them out wait they actually wanted to find locusts like people they didn't well they were dead it was just a thing to do i guess you know like what else do you do in wyoming people on vacation wanted to do this i i don't know how many people did it it just said it was a tourist attraction I think it still is nowadays, like there's hiking trails around it. Wyoming, you have Yellowstone. Why are you telling people (laughs) to go to a glacier to find locusts? Are you that desperate for (laughs) other tourist attractions in your state? Maybe maybe people are just fed up with Yellowstone. They're leaving. They're packing up their things. A sad like park ranger comes out with a hammer and a bug. He's like, hey, you can help me dig up some grasshoppers. Seriously, though, what are they doing? Are they leaving Yellowstone being like, ah, we didn't see any bears or wolves. I guess we can go find some locusts now. Could be cool. (laughs) Could be be cool. They got the locusts, right? They were able to finally conduct some like good genetic studies and they could confirm locusts are extinct. You compare it to the grasshoppers that were hypothesized to be the locusts in a different phase. No. They're two different species. And they also found evidence of the locust being widespread over the past several centuries. Like, if you go back along the layers, there's always locusts. So it suggests that the locusts aren't still alive because we probably would have seen them by now. You know, if they're super plentiful and like every single year along this glacier and they just cut off, they're probably gone. Kind of like if you're looking at a fossil record and you have something that's just in every single layer and then it's cut off and then it's gone you can probably be safe to assume that it went extinct yeah that makes sense but do we have any idea why they went extinct so lockwood worked hard to figure out you know how this exactly happened you know it wasn't the farmers that did it like that wasn't doing jack shit they were literally shooting at them i mean <laughs> that wasn't going to make a difference and no one was eating them I mean, some people probably did, but no one really wanted to, I don't think. So he had an epiphany. Monarch butterflies. Monarchs are found all over the United States, but they're on the risk. They are actually, they were just put on the endangered species list this year. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. So they are also at risk of extinction. Why? I'm not sure, actually. I thought it had something to do with availability of, like, habitat availability. Yeah, that's it. So they all return to breed slash hibernate in the same small forest. Oh. 
Yeah, they do like a weird migration thing to monarchs. So even though you, they'll spread out to like a lot of the U.S., a lot of North America, they'll still concentrate to like one forest in Mexico at one point of their lives. Okay. And if Is... you remove that, you remove all of them pretty much. They only breed there. So even though the locusts were found all over the Midwest, they only bred in a small area. And so at some point we just destroyed that, and so we destroyed the locusts? Yeah, not even on purpose. So their eggs were laid in the rich soil around river valleys of Wyoming and Montana. This is where a lot of other grasshoppers, they kind of lay their eggs in similar areas. It's a good spot. These soils were also having to be some of the best areas for agriculture in the area. So we pretty much just destroyed their habitat, not even realizing it. So we started farming essentially in the bodies of dead locusts that were in this one place. They did some lab experiments. They couldn't really survive being disturbed heavily. So stuff like plows, just kill them off. Oh. So if they're all concentrated in one area and you disturb that so that pretty much none of them really hatch out, you just wiped out the next generation. Oh, so the fa- so all the farmers with their kerosene plows had the right idea. They were just doing it in the wrong spot. Yeah, pretty much. All they had to do is just keep farming. Like, if it literally just kept their heads down and kept going, you know? I mean, they didn't know they'd be over in just a couple of years. And now this is the most widely accepted theory. You know, like, there's a lot of strong evidence to support it. But, you know, we'll never be able to prove it exactly because they are, in fact, extinct. Gotcha. Gotcha. He did launch a survey to see if there are any remaining locusts. Fortunately, none were found. I don't think people would really want them to be found. Yeah, probably not. And even if they were, government probably would order them to be destroyed. The Endangered Species Act does not apply to pests. So how do you get a species listed as a pest? I don't know how you get it listed. Like, everyone just comes to terms like, no one wanted this back. Probably for the better without it. What if we at some point elect a president who decides that monarch butterflies are pests? I don't know the decision making process behind it. I hope people just have common sense. Like no one wants to bring back smallpox, you know, it's an endangered disease, guys. We got to keep it alive. Come on, just read the room a little bit, pal. We don't want that one back. I'm really I'm really wondering how we determine what animals are and are not pests. I don't know, like, uh, there's plenty of, like, fungus that'll, like, kill off corn. I think if that went extinct, no one's really gonna say, hey, it's endangered, you cut that out. Okay, yeah, that makes sense, so do they just get, like, a group of random farmers in a room somewhere and ask him if this animal is disrupting their crop production? I I like to think it's just one single farmer, they'll show him a picture (laughs) of it, and he'll just go, I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just like held up like a picture of his ex-wife or something and got his ex-wife listed as a pest it's like yeah i don't like it get out just, of here eh. not even like a yes or no just kind of a hmm or a, eh. <laughs> just like, what kind of grunt he gives them <laughs> yeah, that's all they get and it wasn't actually until 2014 they're formally declared extinct by the iucn uh, there's still like some debate over the years but now the mating grounds being destroyed is the most widely accepted theory. And there we have it, the story of a locust that everyone wanted to go extinct, 
and that inspired a decades-long mystery trying to figure out how exactly we made that happen. Fascinating. That was really cool. Yeah, and we can't fully rule out Criddle's mixture. That might have played a key <laughs> role in this. Uh, Criddle's mixture. I want to make up a new cocktail and name it <laughs> Criddle's, Criddle's mixture. mixture. <laughs> well, it has to have arsenic, molasses, and horse manure in it. <laughs> Wait, isn't a grasshopper a mixed drink? I think it might be. I don't know. Just do a grasshopper and like spike it really badly with the worst alcohol. Like straight Everclear. No, you just like use whatever the opposite ingredient is in the grasshopper. Like well, what's the t- opposite of alcohol? I don't know. Jesus? Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that reminds me. Uh there was a there's a grasshopper church still out there somewhere in the Midwest. Really? Yeah, they built it to keep away the locusts. How was that supposed to work? Jesus. <laughs> I don't know. People were trying whatever. And they thought they... <laughs> Hell, maybe that's what did it. Between the church and Criddle's mixture. So wait, if they have a bunch of plumbing problems at this church, does, does it become the Locust Church? What, what's it with you and the plumbers? <laughs> no, I'm just really fascinated by the idea that, like, serious lack of, you know, sewage management can lead to people going crazy. Or it can lead to locusts or grasshoppers just like going berserk and becoming locusts and destroying all of our crops and eating the shirts off our backs. Like, that's crazy. It's the power of a plumber. You should be on their marketing team. That's what I'm saying. Represent a plumber's union. The logo for the plumber's union should just be like a guy like plowing over a bunch of locust eggs. The next commercial that they have for any plumbing service would just be him. I hate locusts. And then they cut it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm just saying if if you're a plumber and you're looking for a way to spread your business and to get more attention give me a call i got some ideas for you all right well that's all i got all right cool that, that was a really good story all right so that's all we got for this week yeah so what are you thinking for next time i don't know I, well I, I had a couple ideas i picked the last couple so give me give me an idea awesome to me what if we did um courtship courtship yeah like we talked about like mating behaviors of various animals what else you got (laughs) (laughs) all right (laughs) all right tell you what i'll do you a favor this time we'll do courtship behaviors i'll see what i can pull out of my ass hopefully that's not part of your courtship well with that if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review on your podcast app of choice and give us a follow or subscribe. And of course, if you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can find us on Twitter at Soup Pot Podcast, or you can email us at the primordial soup pot at gmail.com. All one word. Hopefully our listener will start to reach out to us from whatever lake in Montana or our apartment in Brussels they're listening from. Oh. We'll see y'all next time. See ya.